And if you please turn in your Bible, Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 42. So it's been, it's been a month since we actually were in Acts chapter 5. Uh, December 10th was the last time we were in Acts chapter 5. Uh, December 17th, I was in Acts chapter 6 when we did our ordination service for John to be a, a deacon. And then for Christmas, I preached from, from Luke's gospel. Last week, uh, Nathan was here. He preached for us when I was up in Americas uh, preaching at St. Andrews. But now, after a month, we are back in Acts chapter 5. So just to recap uh, the context of today's passage, we're looking at the, the early church. We're looking at the apostles and, and, and the miraculous healings that we saw in the church. There were supernatural joy. There was supernatural peace. There was unity among the believers. And there, there was a radical generosity among the members of the church to the extent that there were none that were in need. See, those who had material resources, they sold their land, they sold their goods, and they gave it to those, they gave it to the church to be distributed to the poor. And as a result, God was blessing this church, and this church grew exponentially. But where God is active, Satan is also active. And Satan attacks his church. And he attacks the church in two ways. First, there's an internal attack. That's an attempt to corrupt the church. And second, then we see an external attack attack, an attempt to persecute the church. And at the beginning of chapter 5, we saw the internal attack. We saw the internal corruption, where Satan was trying to, to corrupt the church with the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, today we see an attempt to destroy the church and her witness through external persecution. And this persecution comes not from pagan Romans, but it comes from the Jewish religious leaders. It comes from the high priests and the ruling council. These were supposedly the defenders of the faith. These were the people who should have been the first to recognize Jesus. But just like how God protected the young church from this internal corruption, from Ananias and Sapphira, he also protects his bride from the external attempts to destroy it through persecution. So let's pray. Or actually, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. But the high priest rose... And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, 
have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, the Eudeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, and they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the example of the early church. We thank you for your protection of the church, protection of the apostles. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you, to see this spiritual reality. I pray, Lord, that you will anoint my words, that they will be your words. And I pray, Father, that you will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to do something a little different in this sermon. Instead of focusing on the disciples, I'm going to look at this passage from the perspective of the religious leaders. These leaders were the people who thought they were the good guys. They saw themselves as defenders of orthodoxy, the defenders of God. But in reality, they found themselves opposing God. They were opposing his church. They were the bad guys. Now, how did they become so deceived? And more importantly, how could we know if we are deceived? Right, here we are Christians. We, we seek to serve God. We seek to defend orthodoxy. Is it possible that we may find ourselves opposing God? And this question is, is particularly important for our Christian tradition, the Reformed tradition, for our denomination, the PCA, for our individual church, Northgate. It's, in because, it's, it's important to us because we, as a tradition, as a denomination, as a church, we seek to be orthodox. We seek to defend the faith. And we're not just defensive. We, we go on the offense. We attack error. We go after error. And we seek to, to identify and expose heretical doctrines, both in the church and in the culture. Apologetics, that is giving a logical and an intellectual 
defense of Christianity. This is a, a major part of our wheelhouse as a, a tradition, as a denomination, and as a church. One of our ruling elders actually holds a, a PhD in apologetics and leads an apologetics ministry. See, we are zealous in opposing error and doctrines that oppose our understanding of orthodoxy. Now, the question we need to consider is what if we're wrong? How do we know if we are deceived like these religious leaders were who opposed the disciples? How do we know that we are not the bad guys? How do we know that we are not the ones who are opposing God? So we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage today looking for clues. Clues that show that these leaders were actually on the wrong paths. And clues that can help us to make sure that we do not fall into the same trap. Well, the first clue we see is in the, in the very first verse, verse 17. And it's the very last word in the last verse. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. These leaders were filled with jealousy toward the apostles. And why? Why were they jealous? They were jealous because of the explosive growth of the church. So we don't know exactly how much time had passed since Pentecost, but it may have been only a few weeks. And the church had gone from 120 members to multiple thousands in just a few weeks. But the growth of the church, this is not the only reason for jealousy. There was also great excitement in the church, both by those in the church and by those outside the church. Verse 13 of chapter 5 tells us that people held the disciples, these are people who were not believers, held them in high esteem. So, so people who were not even in the church saw the church as a good thing. Uh, they were excited by the miracles. They were excited by the, the healings. They were blessed by these healings. And people came from all the surrounding towns to be healed by the apostles. And furthermore, they were jealous of the peace and of the joy and of the unity displayed in the church. They were jealous of the, of the radical generosity shown by the disciples to one another. And all of these things made the church attractive. And it led to its growth and, and it's led to its favor among the people. But it also led to jealousy. Jealousy among these religious leaders. And there was not this type of excitement among the people for the priests. There was not this type of excitement about the temple. See, the period of the sacrificial system, it had ended with Christ's crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection. See, this system, of this sacrificial system, it pointed to Christ and it was fulfilled in Christ. Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was the final sacrifice and after which the, the, the veil on the temple was split and, the, and, the, and the representing the Holy Spirit departing from the temple. And less than 40 years later, less than 40 years later, God in his providence would end temple sacrifice for good, the temple sacrificial system for good with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And the sacrificial system had ended, but there was still a, a large institution there was still, still a large bureaucracy associated with it. And these religious leaders, they relied on the temple for their livelihood. They would not welcome its end. And they had much jealousy toward the church. And this is the first motivation for their, their opposition to the disciples. 
But what about us? Does jealousy motivate our opposition to other groups? Do we see Christian churches or denominations that may differ from us, maybe even differ from us on, on major issues, not essential issues, but major issues, and we see them growing, we see much excitement? Do we oppose them? Because we don't see the same growth and the same excitement here? And there are churches here in Albany They may be different from us on many different things, but they still proclaim the gospel. People are still being saved in these churches. And there's much excitement. But do we oppose these churches because we're jealous that God has given them the growth, given them the excitement that we don't see here? If we do this, we may find ourselves opposing God. So there's the first clue, jealousy. Second clue we see in verse 18. It said they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The second clue is that they used physical force to suppress their theological opponents. Physical force. See, as a church, our battle is spiritual. It is not physical. There are physical components of this battle, but God has ordained the state, that is the civil magistrate, not the, not the church to bear the sword. The civil magistrate, this is God's agent to physically constrain evil, not the church. See, theological opponents are not fought with physical weapons and physical force, but with spiritual weapons. They are fought with prayer, with appeals to Scripture, with arguments, with logic. And as Christians, our goal is not the destruction of our opponent, but rather his conversion. And through the gospel, we seek to make our enemies our friends, to make our enemies our brothers and sisters. And we must be careful not to seek to use physical force or violence to further the cause of Christ. We're often driven to violence because really there's a frustration that we have. And this frustration, what it does is it betrays our lack of faith, our lack of trust in God, in his sovereignty, in his providence. Scripture tells us, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, even if our opponent is heretical, even if they are, are, are spewing falsehood, even if they're spewing evil ideas, failure to follow these commands and taking things into our own hands and, and, and using violence to stop the heresy... This will lead only will, will, will lead us to error. We're not following God's way. This is not the king's way. We're following the way of the world. The next clue we see in how these religious leaders found themselves opposing God is that they completely failed to see the supernatural work of God in the lives of their opponents. The supernatural work. And the supernatural work, this is the reason why the church was growing. Uh, and this has been evident in, in our study in Acts since chapter 2, since the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And specifically in this passage, we see the deliverance of the apostles by an angel, a supernatural deliverance by an angel in verse 19. And this, this passage is almost comical if you think about it. You see the guards, they, they arrest the apostles, then they go to prison, to go to the prison to get the apostles, and they find the doors locked, but the apostles are not there. And remember, most of these leaders here, these are Sadducees. 
They don't believe, the Sadducees do not believe in, in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. The Sadducees, they, they would be like the secularists today. They, they only believed in what they could see. So, so they're, they're really confused about what, what they see here. And they're, they're thinking that the, the, the apostles must have had someone on the inside. There must have been a sympathizer that let them out with the temple workers. See, see they're, they're looking for a worldly explanation. The supernatural is completely off the table. They wouldn't even think about that. But even more miraculous than the release from prison of the apostles, if, even, even if that didn't get their attention, the actions of the apostles after their release, this certainly should have, because this was even more miraculous. So what did the apostles do once they were released? Did they do the thing that we would do, humanly speaking? Did they, the, the thing that would make the most sense? Did they disappear? Did they go underground? Did they seek to escape the punishment that would surely come if they were found outside their cells? No, what do they do? They go right back to the temple and continue to, to speak the words of life, as we're told in verse 20. Uh, they continue to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the very thing that got them arrested. And they did it in the very place that they were arrested. See, this doesn't make any sense to the religious leaders. This behavior does, doesn't fit their, their paradigm. See, they were worldly. And they expected the, the apostles to be worldly and to react the same way they would. They, they thought they would seek to escape punishment. But this is not what the apostles do. They proclaim the gospel. See, the message of the gospel was, was the most important thing that they could proclaim, more important than their personal safety or any danger that they would have faced. And when we see this type of bravery, when we see people act in a way that, that clearly goes against human nature, it, could cause us, it should cause us to pause. It should cause us to ask ourselves, where is this courage coming from? Now, it may not be from God. It may be insanity. It may be irrational zeal. But at least we should stop and ask. Because it may also be from a supernatural encounter of the living, with the living God. And this is a possibility that we should at least consider when we experience behavior that, that radically opposes the self-interest of our natural disposition. It may be a sign that we are opposing God. And notice that while this incident of the apostles' escape may, may not have impacted the leaders. It did affect the officers. It did affect the captain. See, this time, the officers approached the apostles, and they didn't use force against them. Verse 26 tells us that they were afraid of the people. The, the apostles, see, they were popular with the crowd. And if the apostles were arrested out in the open, it, it could cause a riot. And the apostles, but they didn't use this fact to their advantage. Uh, they willingly agreed to go and meet with the council. They could have said no, and, and they probably couldn't have done anything with them because the, the, the crowds would have rebelled. The crowds would have had a riot. But the apostles, again, here, they're, they're completely trusting God. They're trusting God for their safety. They refuse to use any worldly means at their disposal. Again, this is not what we would expect. This is further proof of, of a supernatural source, supernatural power behind their testimony. And this is seen even further in just in the poise and, and the courage the apostles show before the council. The apostles here, they're, they're standing before the most powerful religious leaders in their society. The high priest himself, the most powerful religious person, comes to him and he asks them in verse 28, he says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
See, the apostles are before men who, who obviously had the power to hurt them, to, to beat them, to imprison them, or even to kill them. And there would be great temptation at this point to, to soften the message, maybe to, to, to flatter the leaders, to attempt to reason with them, explain, you know, we're, not, we're not propagating a new religion. We're, we're taught Jesus is the fulfillment of the religion that you guys are guardian of. There would be an attempt to, to try to soften up, to, to bring them on board. But that's not what the apostles do. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at Peter's response in verses 29 and 32. It says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, doesn't this seem like an overly antagonistic approach? Peter's telling him, basically, you guys are opposing God. He's saying, we must obey God rather than men, meaning you, you holy, you high priest. Your command is opposed to God. And this man, the high priest, he's supposed to represent God to the people. This council is supposed to know the ways of God. But here they are. Here they are, 180 degrees opposed to God, opposed to his Christ, and opposed to his church. And the problem with these men was not ignorance. They did not need more information. They were not honestly mistaken. They were willfully ignorant. Their problem was not one of the heart. Their problem was not one of the head. It was one of the heart. They had willfully closed their eyes to God's revelation about Jesus and about the apostles. And what they needed above all else was to repent. And Peter's testimony before the council is a call to repentance. This is the moment of truth. And the question is, will the leaders recognize their error? Will they recognize that they are actually opposing God? Or will they dig in their heels, react with rage rather than humility? And sadly, in verse 33, we see the answer. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And this rage itself is, is another indication that they're opposing God. See, if these men were, were godly, they would have taken a pastoral role toward Peter and toward the apostles. Right After all, these were the spiritual leaders in Israel. They were the grown-ups. Even if they thought the apostles were misguided, they should have recognized that the apostles believed that they were serving God. The leaders, if they were genuinely seeking to serve God, they would have attempted at least to understand what the apostles were saying. They would have at least tried to minister to them. But this is not what we see. Their failure to do any of this really displays the heart of the problem with these religious leaders. And the heart of the problem is that they really did not believe in the God that they claimed to serve. They were false teachers. See, religion to them, it was a job. It, it was a racket. It was a way for them to have power and respect among the people and power and respect among the Romans. See, these leaders, and especially the Sadducees, that that was the, the party of the high priest, they did not believe. They were functional atheists. These men were not spiritual. These men were only worldly. They could not recognize that God was in their presence, that God was working in their presence. And this is the essence of their problem. 
This is the reason why they were opposing God. This is the reason why they were opposing his people. But there was one exception. One very notable exception. And that was Gamaliel. Gamaliel. The wisdom of Gamaliel. This is really the, 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 the bright spot in this passage. See, Gamaliel, he was the most prominent, he was the most respected rabbi of his day. He was actually the teacher of the Apostle Paul. And Gamaliel, he was a, a Pharisee. And for all the problems with the Pharisees, we, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees a lot in the Gospels because they were legalistic. But unlike the Sadducees, at least they believed in God. They believed in the Scripture. You can think of the Sadducees, they were the liberals, the, the secularists. And the, and the Pharisees, they were the legalists and the fundamentalists. So they, Jesus criticized both of them. But at least the Pharisees believed in God. And Gamaliel, he was, he was a man of honor. He was concerned with knowing and doing God's will. Gamaliel, he was not a Christian, but he recognized that there was something different in the apostles. And he cautions the council. He says, don't rush too quickly to judgment, but rather, rather give it time. And Gamaliel, he gave examples of other movements and other leaders that, that quickly died out at the death of their leader. In verses 38 and 39, Gamaliel says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Keep away from the apostles. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. See, Gamaliel is really the only one here who wants to obey God. He's the only one that we see his main goal is to obey God rather than to preserve his power in his own position. And if it is, and if it is from God, opposing these apostles would be opposing God. And this is the one thing that he does not want to do. So Gamaliel here, he, he displays both wisdom and humility that's absent from any of the other members of the council. And as we read about Gamaliel, it's, it's, it's natural for us to wonder, was Gamaliel really, was he a Christian at this time when he gave the, the advice? Did, did he recognize these people with his brothers and was he trying to protect them? Or if he was not a, at this point a Christian, did he later convert? Well, Scripture is silent about whether Gamaliel um, ever became a follower of Christ. There's no mention of his conversion in Scripture or in any ancient Jewish documents. However, church tradition does hold that Gamaliel and his son actually did in fact become followers of Christ and were, were baptized by the apostles uh, Peter and John. Now, we can't say for sure, but I tend to think based on the wisdom, based on the humility, Based on this desire to obey God displayed in, in Gamaliel in this passage, that I think there's evidence here the Holy Spirit is working in this man. And, and I like to think that we will see him in heaven. Now, we don't know if, if, if it's because of Gamaliel's influence or, or fear of the crowds, but the, the council actually does decide not to, to put the apostles to death, what they wanted to do. But I don't think they were following Gamaliel's advice, though. Because even though they didn't kill the apostles, they still beat, beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They're still opposing the apostles. They're still opposing God. But the beatings, the threats, the commands, they have no effects on the apostles. Look at verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And every day in the temple and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, if anything, if anything, the actions of the council had the exact opposite of their intended effect. The apostles were rejoicing at the suffering they endured. And they were even more committed to preaching and teaching about Jesus. So what do we learn here? What do we learn from these religious leaders? How do we protect ourselves from going down this same path, thinking we're serving God, but in actuality, opposing him? See, other than than Gamaliel, the religious leaders, they were concerned not with God's honor. They were not concerned with his will, but they were concerned with their own honor. They were concerned with their own will. They were jealous. They were jealous of the apostles. See, they didn't care if God was glorified in in the work of the apostles. They only cared that they were not honored. They were not glorified by the apostles. And they saw the apostles as a threat to their power. And because of this jealousy, they failed to recognize all the ways that God was supernaturally working in this new movement, this Christian church, these apostles. And not only did they not believe God was working in the church and in the apostles, but they did not believe that God worked anywhere. They did not believe in the supernatural at all. And here is the bottom line that we see here. These men were not converted. They claimed to serve God, but they did not know God. And here's the warning to us. We must not put our trust in ourselves. We must not put our trust that our church, or or that I go to church, or or that I read the Bible. We must put our our, our trust in Christ, in Christ alone. We must belong to him. We must belong to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must seek his glory alone, not our own glory. And we must be humble. We must be willing to decrease so that Christ can increase, even if he increases through the work of others, through the ministry of others and not through us. And this humble attitude, this is the only protection, only protection to assure that we do not find ourselves in this dangerous position of opposing God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray, Lord, that you protect us, that we do not find ourselves in that same situation, that we are opposing God, that we do not trust in ourselves, we do not trust in our knowledge of Scripture or our church membership, but only in Christ, that we rest on Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the Scriptures. He is our only hope. And Lord, I pray that you will give us the humility the humility to be willing to decrease so that Christ is glorified, even if it's in other people and in other places. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.